Worship and preaching never occurs in a vacuum. It always occurs in a context, and particularly in the context of the present moment. There are three particular contexts that I want to acknowledge this morning before we jump in together to 1 Peter chapter 1. Mother's Day. I want to say happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers listening. We are so thankful for the moms in our world and in our own lives and for all that they have poured into their children and into our communities. Thank you. And thank you for the extra burden that you're bearing right now. Having said that, I also want to acknowledge how difficult this day can be for those of you who want to be moms but are not, for those whose mothers or children have passed away, or for those who experience broken relationships in your families. I do just want to say that I'm sorry for the pain that you experience on this day, and I imagine that your sense of discouragement and loss is increased on today, and I want you to know that we long to be a community that can come alongside you and offer care and encouragement and support. The second context is the pandemic, still upon us. We're still struggling. And this is hard and it's not what any of us want. I still, of course, encourage us to cry out to God with prayers of lament and anguish over all that you are experiencing, we are experiencing collectively. And to those of you who are working hard on the front lines in the medical world, I want to thank you. We are praying for you, especially those of you who are part of this community. To those who are especially isolated or alone during this quarantine, we are praying for you as well. And the ministers of Park Street Church long to be with you, not only in heart and in prayer as we are now, but we long for the day when, when it is safe, of course, we can be together in person again. The third context is Ahmad Arbery, the 25-year-old black man who was killed in, George, in a Georgia neighborhood in February, a case that went viral this last week. I hesitate to mention this context because I don't really know you yet. I see you through a camera, and most of you don't really know me yet, and I'm afraid that this is all that I'll hear about after the sermon. But I don't want to be silent, and as your pastor, I want to say to you three things about this context. First, we in the church must acknowledge the tragedy that this young man lost his life, and we must grieve over that. Second, we must acknowledge that while all of us are saddened, many in the African-American community, many of whom are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and our fellow members of Park Street Church, are uniquely shaken by this event, and understandably so. Third, we, the church, must speak out, especially as this incident has again raised the discussion in our nation. We must speak out against the sin of racism, and we must work together with all who are part of the diverse body of Christ in Boston, in New England, and in our nation to understand how we, Park Street Church, might participate in this conversation in humble, faithful, and fruitful ways. It is my aim to lead us in this direction as part of our gospel duty. It's not easy, of course. It's not easy at all because it's so easy to be misunderstood and to be offended or to offend. But we must take that risk as followers of Jesus and engage and not lag behind in this conversation and this effort. Reconciliation is at the heart of our gospel. God is bringing things, people together in the person of Jesus. He is uniting all things together in him. And this conversation is native to the church. So having given those three contexts, let me pray for us as we come to the letter of 1 Peter. 
Oh God, our Father, we cry out to you as those in need, as those who long for the outpouring of your spirit upon us, that we might have wisdom, that we might have courage, that we might be filled with love, that we might have life. Lord, we come to you from so many different places, yet all of us sharing these three contexts that I just mentioned, and yet all sharing them uniquely, all having different perspectives and experiences. And Lord, we cry out to you for unity. We cry out to you that you would unite your church, unite us, Park Street Church, and unite us with other churches in this city that proclaim the gospel. Churches made up of people from all different backgrounds and ethnicities and socioeconomic brackets. Grant, Lord, that we might be one as you and the Father are one, so that the world might know that the Father has sent you. Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would open up your word to us, address us as only you can do. Do that, we pray, through the power of your Holy Spirit. May this message, may my words, not be with wise and persuasive words of human wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That is our only hope, O oh God. We cry, we cry this out to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me ask you a question as we begin. Are you joyful? Are you joyful? Now, while, while this is the text that we've come to in 1 Peter today, and this is the topic, it may seem strange that I'm asking that question in the midst of the circumstances that I just outlined. These particular circumstances and, and many others can lead to very real frustration, anger, fear, anxiety, and a whole host of other realities. I affirm that there must be genuine wrestling and lament in the Christian life over our broken world. But at the same time, the experiences of our broken world and such less than ideal circumstances like the pandemic we're living in provide a very fitting moment in which to ask questions about Christian joy. Because Peter, as we'll see, affirms the joy of believers, of Christian believers, in the midst of the trials that are causing them grief and distress. We'll come back to this in a moment. So this may, in fact, be one of the most fitting times for us to think about the presence of joy in our lives. Last week, we went to the mountaintop with Peter, and we began to see the wonder of the Christian's position in verses 3 through 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Now today we continue in that section with verses 6 through 9. And we see the realities of this new life in our present day experience. And the overwhelming reality that Peter gives voice to is the reality of joy. Which is mentioned in both verses 6 and verse, six and verse 8. And that's what we want to reflect on together this morning. A rejoicing hope. We are born again, or um, brought new birth into a living hope, Peter says. And that hope produces joy now in the present. So let me ask first, what is the source of this Christian joy? Notice how verse 6 begins. In all this, you greatly rejoice. So the all this, and all is added here by the NIV, but it's a fair addition. All this is the, the cause or the source of our rejoicing. What is all this? It is quite simply, it is quite simple really. It's the reality of our new birth into a new family. 
This means, as Peter details, a new, new sets of relationships as well as new privileges and, inher- and an inheritance. When Sylvie Ann was born on April 27th and when Daniel Zechariah was born on May 6th, they were born into the Skinner and Dukes families, respectively. And for those who don't know, Nathan Skinner is our director of music playing the organ today, and the Dukes are deacons for our small group ministries. For these children, these births meant, above all, an entry into a family and into loving and intimate relationships with their parents, and in Sylvie's case, with her sisters. Birth into a family means, first and foremost, an entry into relationships of love and intimacy. Peter's new birth metaphor clearly points to this kind of reality of new relationships as he refers to God as Father twice in his opening chapter, once in verse 2 and once in verse 17. And further, in verse 14, he refers to us as obedient children. The joy of our new birth is the joy of relationships and presence in a new family. In verse 8, Peter goes on to reflect on the nature of that relationship that we share with our our Lord Jesus, saying that we love Jesus and that we believe in him and that our loving him and believing him leads to rejoicing with joy or being filled with joy. This is the joy of loving union with God, a joy of God's presence. As Psalm 16 verse 11 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. But this new relationship also means new privileges and a new inheritance. Being born into the Booker family long ago, where my father was a a TWA pilot for 35 years, meant that I got to visit Vera's Cafe in the basement of St. Louis International Airport, the hub of TWA. They had the best grilled cheeses ever. It also meant that I was able to take three and four day weekends in college to go on free trips to Europe with family passes. That's a privilege that I sadly lost when I graduated from college. But being part of that family had certain kinds of privileges, certain kinds of opportunities. So what does being born again into the Christian family of God bring us into? Verse 5, it's the present privilege of being guarded or shielded by the power of God right now. Through faith for a future salvation and an inheritance. These rights and these privileges are being part of, of being part of God's family are the source of our joy, along with the relationships that we enjoy with God and with others, as Peter will go on later to write about. In all this, Peter says, you greatly rejoice. We know God. We belong to God. We are part of his family. And as a result of this, our future is assured. So rejoice. Now, what needs to be said at this point is that Christian joy is then not derived from attaining the goods of this world. Relationships, wealth, knowledge, promotions, restful vacations, and so on. When our joy is calibrated to these things, and this is a very strong temptation in an affluent society, it's not really a possibility for the Syrian child who has known nothing but scarcity, hunger, and war. But it's a great possibility for those of us who live in affluent cultures in the West. When our joy is calibrated to these realities, it is fundamentally insecure because our circumstances can change in an instant. Furthermore, these realities can never actually satisfy us. They can never fill us. We often still seek them and and seek that they would do so in overt, overt and subtle ways, but they never will. Pascal once observed that man in vain tries to fill his void from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent 
the help he does not obtain in things present. We stay on the prowl, never being satisfied. Try as we might, this world and its circumstances and its blessings will never be a foundation for our joy. In all this, Peter says, we greatly rejoice because we have been reborn into a family of God. And that means we have a living hope, which includes an assured inheritance and a final salvation. And this is enough. This is the source of our joy. In this, you greatly rejoice. What is the quality of Christian joy then? Peter describes their joy in verse 8 as inexpressible and full of glory or inexpressible and glorious. God has done such great things for us. God has given himself to us. God has brought us into new life. And the idea here is that this is all so great that it cannot be expressed in human terms. It renders us speechless. One of the small bright spots of this pandemic has been John Krasinski's YouTube show, Some Good News, SGN for short. It's a new show, which he does, I presume, in his living room, where he just reports some good news in the midst of all the bad news that we're hearing. And in the second episode... He Zooms with his special guest, a nine-year-old girl named Aubrey from Jacksonville, Florida, whose parents had posted on social media that she was devastated because she couldn't go see Hamilton when Hamilton was coming to Jacksonville. It had obviously been canceled. Krasinski tells her that he's going to pay for her and her mom to go to New York City when this is all over so that they can actually see the show on Broadway. But the surprise gets better. All of a sudden, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Aubrey's hero, pops into the call and Aubrey's hands cover her mouth in astonishment. He says that he can do better than Krasinski and can bring Hamilton to her. Then, all of a sudden, the cast from Hamilton pops into the call on individual screens, screens and they do an amazing smash rendition of the song Alexander Hamilton. And Aubrey's cute face is in the mix of all of these uh, other screens. And she's just covering her mouth, astonished, speechless. That's a picture of joy inexpressible. And you can almost hear her thoughts out loud. You mean you did all of this for me? All of this just for me? And we're a bit like Aubrey, but it's not Krasinski. It's the God of heaven, and it's not Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not to entertain us, but it's to deliver us from our mortal wound and to meet our deepest needs and desires. Jesus comes, enters into our flesh, takes upon himself the realities of our sin and of all the evil and brokenness of the world in order that we might be set free. He says, I've come that my joy might be in you so that your joy might be complete. This is why he came. And our response is to be, you did all of that for me? Really? Paul is so personal about this in Galatians 2 when he says the Son of God gave himself up for me. He did all this for me. This isn't some kind of big story that I just sort of fit into. This is about me and it's about you. It's a very personal reality. God's work on the cross is deeply personal. Psalm 126 verse 3, verse 3 says, The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. A joy, Peter would say, that is inexpressible. That can't be put into human words. Do we understand the magnitude of what God has done for us. Of course, our joy, unlike young Aubrey's exciting moment or the trip to New York City that will come at some point in her life with her mom, Christian joy is lasting and eternal. And Peter describes Christian joy as full of glory or glorious. 
which is pointing us forward. Glory is our future. Paul says in Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's where we're headed. And so when Peter says that our joy has a quality of being full of glory or glorious, he's pointing us to the future as one commentator described, our joy is lit up by the light of eternity. We are moving toward complete renewal and restoration as image bearers of God. So just after mentioning the quality of our joy, Peter proceeds in verse 9 to saying that we are receiving the end result or obtaining the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. He's pointing to the future, having mentioned joy being full of glory because they go together. This is something permanent and everlasting and yes, indeed, glorious. Instead of fading away over time, what God has done for us in Christ continues to affect our present, to grow with us day by day until it's full flowering on the day when Jesus will return the last time, as Peter mentions in verse 5. That future moment when all the world will be suffused with the grace of God that transforms it into a glorious new creation. We will reign with Christ in glory. This promise the future reality that we are already tasting in some real way in the present. It's this that lights up our joy. But my next question is, in what context does this Christian joy occur? In what context does this Christian joy occur? And this loops us back to where I began. In the world of suffering. In the world of tears. In the world of pandemics, in the world of injustice, in the world of pain, in the world of broken relationships. For this point, we turn back to verse 6. In all this, Peter says, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. His readers are in the midst of trial. And there is a fair sense in which our trials can come from the brokenness of the world in sin. That is, of course, what we're experiencing in the reality of this pandemic. And that is what we experience in the face of illness and death. But there is also a more direct sense in this letter. That trials come from belonging to God and therefore being exiles in this world. As Peter called God's people in verse 2. This status as exiles is why they have had to, in verse 6, or why the trials are necessary. A quick survey of the letter shows us the kinds of trials that Peter's readers were facing. They were being spoken against, chapter 2, verse 12. Being beaten, chapter 2, verse 20. Being slandered, chapter 3, verse 16. Being maligned, chapter 4, verse 4. Being attacked by their enemy, the devil. Chapter 5, verse 8. This is not an easy context. It's a challenging context. Peter gives to his readers and to us two additional perspectives in verses 6 and 7 that are to help us maintain our heart of joy in the midst of this present context. The first thing he says is our trials are temporary. He uses the expression for a little while in verse 6, meaning that our trials are relatively brief. And he comes back to this idea in chapter 5 verse 10. Of course, God's perspective on time and our perspective on time are quite different, as we all know. And our suffering or our pain or our trials rarely ever feels brief. I acknowledge that. 
But even if, even if our lives are filled with trials to our dying day, and to some degree they are, from the vantage point, the, the reference of eternity, they are therefore relatively brief. So Paul, whose long catalog of, whose catalog of sufferings was great indeed, can say in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Peter encourages us to take heart that our trials are just for a little while. They aren't for all eternity. And that is to encourage us to truly have joy in the midst of them. But secondly, and perhaps more uh, dominantly, Peter speaks of the purpose of their trials. He gives them a purpose. He says that the trials that they're walking through are opportunities to reveal the proven or tested genuineness of their faith and to purify that faith. The comparison he makes was well known in the ancient world, the comparison with gold, something that was valuable, something that was refined by fire. It was melted and the impurities would rise to the top. And Peter says, if something so valuable, which so valuable, but which perishes in the end, he says it perishes. If something like that is refined in this way, then how much more appropriate is it that our faith, which never perishes, is refined by the fires of affliction and trial? Unlike gold, our faith will last and it is far more valuable than anything in this world. Part of what makes our faith more valuable is what it leads to, as Peter mentions in verse 7, to praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are what matter most. The commendation of God, well done, my good and faithful servant. As Paul said, our afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And nothing, nothing in this world can compare to that glorious future. Nothing is worth more. And if we know, as Peter teaches us here, that our trials are demonstrating the genuineness of our faith and purifying our faith, strengthening our unqualified allegiance to Jesus Christ, then this can help us to bear up under them. I remember a story I heard about 20 years ago about a Romanian pastor named Joseph San who lived under the communist regime in Romania. And he suffered greatly under that regime. He was describing one day when the police came to his home with instructions to confiscate his library. These were his treasured possessions as a pastor in the communist world. They needed proof from him that the books that they took back were actually his books. So they would pull a book off the shelf and put it on the desk in front of him and he would write in the book his name. At one point, Son describes, they took a book off the shelf that was entitled Joy Unspeakable and Full of Glory. And the subtitle was, Is This Your Experience Now? And Son describes that in that moment, as this passage from 1 Peter was literally lifted off the shelf and put in front of him, that he was flooded with joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that he let go of his anger and resentment and bitterness in that moment, asked his wife to get the soldiers some coffee and bring it to them. And he began to entertain them as you would treasured, valued guests. The joy carried with him into the pulpit the next Sunday in his church when, because he had no more books, he preached a heartfelt message on Nehemiah 8.10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And people responded to his example of joy in the midst of suffering. 
as we lose the things of this world, and this is so often what our trials are about, we lose our grip on our health or our security or our possessions. As we lose our grip on these things, trials as they prove the genuineness of our faith lead us to have a deeper, stronger grip upon the realities of Jesus and all that we enjoy and experience in him. Sans faith in that moment was being proven genuine and refined. And this is what Peter is saying about our trials. Let them show forth the fact that our living hope and the joy that it produces is not in the attainment of the goods of this world, but it rests on all that we possess in the person of Christ. The proven genuineness of Sans faith was re- revealed in that moment, among many others. This, of course, doesn't mean that we can't lament before the Lord when we're in circumstances that are challenging like the present day. Peter says that they have suffered grief, his readers. And this is a real experience in their lives and in our lives. This word about joy doesn't mean that we don't long for the eradication of evil in our present day. Of course we do. And cries of lament and tears of sorrow are an entirely appropriate and faith-filled response to the circumstances of of the moments in which we live, to the pain that our lives experience. Jesus, our Lord himself, wept. And he taught us, blessed are those who mourn. We must never misunderstand Christian teaching on joy to somehow deny the full humanity that we all Uh, that we all participate in, that experiences pain and grief and suffering, and that the faith that gives voice to these realities in our lives. But in the midst of this, there is an underlying foundation of joy because of our union with Christ and our promised inheritance. Like the bass line of an upright bass in a jazz ensemble whose repeated rhythm And repetition undergirds the entirety and the variety of the performance. Joy is that underlying rhythm that strings together every day of our Christian lives. Those of us who have been born again into the family of God. As we work to care for our neighbors in need in the midst of this pandemic. As we seek to eradicate racism from our world and from our own hearts as we seek to increase the unity and trust of churches in this city for one another, motivated by the love of God for us, we must not do so under the illusion that we can attain the kingdom now before Christ comes. We must hold our hopes and our dreams for our own lives and for those of our neighbor in their proper and eschatological or last times perspective doing all that we can in love in the present day, but clinging all the more tightly as we do so to the eternal future that belongs to us in Christ and that animates our joy. This is our posture, to be forward-looking. But in our forward-looking posture, it is to be radically engaged in the present day as agents of the gospel, agents of love, Agents of justice, agents of truth, agents of reconciliation. In fact, when Paul reflects on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, the longest treatment of the resurrection in the New Testament, he finishes with saying, let us give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord in this present day is not in vain. 
The future hope and the joy that derives from it in the Christian life is not a disincentive to engaging in the world of brokenness in which we find ourselves, but rather the very incentive to engage and the strength for that engagement in our everyday lives. And it is that reality in the future that enables joy in the midst of our weeping and our tears in the present day. To go back to 2 Corinthians, we are fixing our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. We are walking not by sight, but by faith. And as we do so, this is the secret of Christian joy. It is living not by what we do see, but by what we cannot see. That enables us to carry forward day in and day out with joy. Peter plays into this in verse 8 when he says that we love Jesus though we have not seen him and we believe in Jesus though we do not now see him. Peter's playing on this reality of faith versus sight and saying you don't see him but you love him. You know the warmth and the intimacy and the depth of relationship with him and so you are filled with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. It's not a thing that you see but it's a thing that you grasp and behold by faith and this is the way that we live. I want to share an illustration that comes from Alistair Begg, a Scottish preacher who spent most of his ministry in Cleveland. He had been teaching at a conference in Palo Alto in 2009, and after his session, a lady come up, came up to him and said, hey, I've got a, a good illustration for you. And this is what she told him. She told him that she had a friend in a hospital who was suffering from brain cancer and impaired deeply by it, and the treatments were daunting. But his trust and his hope in Christ was such that it was deeply striking to the medical personnel who were caring for him. So much so that one of the nurses caring for him on seeing this man wrote in his chart as a critical comment about him. Mr. X this morning is inappropriately joyful. Inappropriately joyful. It's a wonderful, great turn of phrase. Because for the Christian, joy is never inappropriate. Why? Because we've been granted new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Peter would say. And because by that rebirth, we've been brought into the family of God and we've inherited privileges and we have an inheritance that will never fade or perish or spoil. And this is our reality. This is what causes us to overflow with joy in the midst of of circumstances of trial. Do you know this joy? How might you know it as I close? Admittedly, the examples I've given, communist Romania, a ter terminal brain cancer, seem far removed from our daily lives. But these extreme stories do speak into our present moment. They show us that as Christians, we live in two overlapping and interpenetrating sets of circumstances. The question, the key question that I want you to wrestle with today is which one of these sets of circumstances is primary? Which one of these shapes your identity most? To which one of these sets of circumstances is your joy being calibrated today? To our position with God or to our position in the world? What is most true about you? When life is moving along quite normally and well, or with inconveniences and disturbances, the difficulty is that it's hard to discern just how much of the circumstances of this world are really shaping our sense of well-being and gladness and joy. 
The gift of trials, if we can say it in that way, is that they force the choice because the circumstances of this world are so dire when we're walking through them. And we're forced with a choice. Will we live in the reality and truth about who we are in Jesus? Will that be our deepest and most formative reality in our lives? Will that be our truest truth, if you will? Or will we see the circumstances around us as chiefly determinative of our identity and our experience? We're driven back then in this case to the question of faith versus sight. Will we live by faith? Peter takes us up to the mountaintop, not so that we can see with our physical eyes. The mountaintop is figurative. It's it's a figural mountaintop because Peter wants us to see with the eyes of faith. He wants the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. To all that we've been given in Jesus Christ. This is the primary context of our lives. And this primary context is why joy is never inappropriate. If this seems far-fetched to you, too distant, then I want to encourage you to dwell on what God has done for you in Christ this week. On the wonders of your inheritance in him. As we dwell upon these realities of verses 3 through 5, they produce the joy about which Peter writes in verses 6 through 9. And our response may simply be, God, how could you be so good? How could you be so good to do this in my life? Think back to Aubrey. How could you be so good to bring all of this together for me? How could you? And that becomes the fuel and the source of our joy. This rescue This salvation, this inheritance, this new relationship with the almighty God. This is our great joy. And this joy can be expressed even now, even in circumstances that we're living in in the moment. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would grant to us the gift of faith. A faith that would grasp the living hope into which we have been reborn. And a hope that would produce a joy inexpressible and full of glory in our hearts. Lord, where that primary context for us has been pushed to the margins, where it's been been pushed away by griefs or pains or to-do lists or just the day-to-day work of our lives, we pray that you would bring it back to the center by your grace and power and that our joy would overflow. We pray that we would contemplate deeply the truth of what you have done for us in your son. Lord, I pray specifically for anyone who is with us right now that does not yet know the reality of this joy, that this feels just too distant, too far, too good. I pray that you would reveal yourself by your grace and mercy this week. And that the truth of these things would become true in their own lives. Applied to their lives by the power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. We ask this for his glory. We ask that we would be inappropriately joyful for the week ahead. Amen.